Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 11th edition of the Work Comp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Litigation experts claim that Big Pharma is having a big tobacco moment. But much like the tobacco litigation over the past 50 years, there's no precedent for the current opioid lawsuits. But the growing opioid litigation seems to be following in the footsteps of the infamous tobacco litigation. Back in the 1950s, individual plaintiffs sued tobacco companies, alleging negligence in the manufacture of and advertising for cigarettes. Tobacco fought back and prevailed in those early lawsuits. A second wave of lawsuits emerged in the 1980s, and plaintiffs found their first victory in the landmark case of Ciploni v. Liggett, although the $400,000 verdict was reversed on appeal. Tobacco successfully argued that smokers knew and knowingly assumed the risks and that federal law governing advertising preempted state laws. Like the tobacco litigation, suits are now being filed by municipalities, counties, and states claiming that opioid pain medications have cost the government substantial sums of public funds to deal with the consequences. The epidemic was allegedly fueled by the defendants' acts of placing these highly addictive prescription medications into the stream of commerce and fraudulent marketing regarding safety. Even insurance companies are waking up to the fact that they have had to pay billions in claim dollars as a direct result of this preventable epidemic. They too are lining up to seek compensation and reimbursement for increased workers' compensation and health insurance claims costs that could amount to more than $25 billion. Lawyers working for the opioid litigation against those responsible for the prescription crisis recognize that billions have been spent unnecessarily by the insurance industry and are looking for insurance companies to join the litigation. Last month's issue of Medical Care Magazine estimated that the societal cost of the U.S. prescription opioid epidemic tops $80 billion and is growing. Health insurers and workers' compensation carriers shoulder about one-third of this costs, while only one-fourth of it is borne by the public sector. For employers and workers' compensation carriers, this means that even employees who don't fit the stereotype of drug users will struggle with this potentially deadly addiction. And this crisis has led directly to increased workers' comp costs. A 2012 report by Lockton Companies concluded that prescription opioids are presently the number one workers' compensation problem in terms of controlling the ultimate costs of indemnity losses. The report says that there has never been a more damaging impact on the cost of workers' comp claims from a single issue than the abuse of opioid prescriptions for the management of chronic pain. It also says that an estimated 55 to 86 percent of all claimants are receiving opioids for chronic pain relief. A 2012 Hopkins Accident Research Fund study determined that employees prescribed even one opioid had average total claims costs four to eight times greater than employees with similar claims who did not take opioids. 
The reasons include increased emergency room visits from overdose, death, addiction treatment, related illnesses and abuse, and misuse of prescribed drugs. It is estimated that 35% of employees receiving long-term opioid pain treatment are addicted. An annual workers' compensation report from pharmacy benefit managing Giant Express Scripts recently noted that prolonged opioid use has been shown to be associated with poorer outcomes, longer disability, and higher medical costs for injured workers. And in another opioid litigation story, Montana has sued Oxycontin maker Purdue Pharma withdrawing from a multi-state investigation by attorneys general and joining a growing list of states that have broken off to pursue individual lawsuits. The new lawsuit is accusing Purdue of misrepresenting the likelihood that long-term use of painkillers would lead to addiction and of falsely claiming it was safe for treating chronic pain. The 64-page lawsuit alleges that the violations committed by Purdue include misrepresenting the likelihood that long-term use of its drug would lead to addiction, falsely claiming that use of OxyContin would improve overall health quality and failing to disclose the harmful side effects caused by long-term opioid use, falsely claiming long-term opioid use is safe and effective pain treatment even though Purdue had no evidence to prove it, telling prescribers that OxyContin works for 12 hours even though Purdue knew that it did not for many patients requiring frequent increases in dosage, thus increasing the likelihood of addiction, also claiming that its new generation of abuse deterrence opioids were safer and would prevent abuse and diversion when Purdue knew that the drugs were still readily abused, and also falsely claiming that opioids are safer than alternative non-narcotic treatment. Purdue faces lawsuits by at least 11 states in addition to Montana. It also faces lawsuits by cities and counties nationally and a federal probe by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Connecticut. Plaintiffs' lawyers involved in the cases have compared them to the litigation by states against the tobacco industry that led to 1998's $246 billion settlement. Purdue and three executives pleaded guilty in 2007 to federal charges related to the misbranding of OxyContin and agreed to pay a total of $634.5 million to resolve a U.S. Justice Department probe. That year, Purdue also reached a $19.5 million settlement with 26 states and the District of Columbia. It agreed in 2015 to pay $24 million to resolve a lawsuit filed by the state of Kentucky. And now our crime report. A doctor who operated a medical clinic in Linwood has been found guilty of drug trafficking charges. A federal jury found that he issued prescriptions for powerful narcotics and sedatives without a medical purpose for mostly young patients who sometimes traveled more than 100 miles to get his prescriptions. 65-year-old Dr. Edward Riggill, who has residences in Whittier and Newberry Park, was found guilty of 26 felony counts after the jury deliberated for about 30 minutes. 
The evidence presented during a one-week trial showed that Riggill illegally prescribed the opioid painkiller hydrocodone, which is often sold under the brand name Norco. Alprazolam, best known by the brand name Xanax, and Carisporidol, a muscle relaxer often sold under the brand name Soma. Evidence based from a California database that tracks prescriptions was used to confirm Riggill's predatory prescribing to patients traveling from Victorville, Palmdale, and Desert Hot Springs to obtain prescriptions. In 2014 alone, Riggill wrote nearly 9,000 prescriptions, and 95% of those prescriptions were for hydrocodone, alprazolam, and carisperidol, typically for the maximum strength. The combination of these three drugs is the most sought-after drug cocktail in the black market. Undercover DEA operatives who received prescriptions from him in exchange for cash also testified during the trial. Their testimony showed that his initial physical exams were cursory and far from the type of exams required to justify prescribing high doses of controlled substances. Authorities recovered multiple pre-written prescriptions for controlled substances, as well as cash-found lining patient files and stuffed in the drawers containing those files. Prosecutors argued that this demonstrated that Riggill operated a cash-for-drugs business. He is scheduled to be sentenced in March by United States District Judge James Otero. He faces decades in federal prison, and this was not his first run-in with the law. He was convicted by a jury back in 1998 of the federal crime of mail fraud. State records reflect that he had devised a scheme to defraud the Employment Development Department by falsely certifying that various individuals were disabled after he had medically examined them. However, he knew full well that those individuals were not disabled. As a result of the 1998 conviction, his medical license was revoked, but the revocation was stayed and he was placed on probation for five years. In 2004, the medical board granted early relief from his probation. He is currently still licensed to practice medicine in California. A former NBA player has pleaded guilty to fraudulently taking money meant for an African charity that he ran. Kermit Washington, who was scheduled to go to trial in U.S. District Court in Kansas City, instead pleaded guilty to two counts of making a false statement and tax return and one count of aggravated identity theft. Prosecutors say 66-year-old Washington referred professional athletes to San Diego workers' comp attorney Ronald Jack Mix so that Mix could file workers' compensation claims in California on behalf of the athletes. Washington used his position as a regional representative for the National Basketball Players Association to refer clients to attorney Mix. Mix then agreed to make donations to Washington's charity. The Sixth Man Foundation, which did business as a Project Contact Africa. Washington accepted about $155,000 in donations to his charity, which were actually illegal referral payments from Mix and his law firm. Washington then diverted money from the charity's bank account to pay himself or for personal spending. 
Washington admitted that he failed to account for his income to the charity on Project Contact Africa's IRS filings during those years. Mr. Mix, himself a member of the NFL Hall of Fame, pleaded guilty last year to filing a false tax return. Mix made donations ranging from $5,000 to $25,000 for referrals of athletes, some of whom lived in the Western District of Missouri. Mix then claimed those payments as charitable contributions on his IRS forms in 2010 to 2013. The California State Bar suspended Mix from the practice of law in 2016 pending the outcome of disciplinary proceedings it filed against him. The case against Washington also involved a Maryland man, Reza Devachi, who was once prosecuted in a separate case in one of the largest software piracy crimes ever handled by U.S. authorities. Washington accepted about $82,000 in contributions to his charity from DeVitchi and also diverted those funds from the charity's bank account to pay himself for personal spending. In 1977, Washington was involved in one of the ugliest on-court basketball incidents in NBA history. During a game between the Los Angeles Lakers and Houston Rockets, Washington punched Rudy Tomjanovich, shattering bones in his face and nearly killing him. A sentencing date for Washington has not yet been set. And in regulatory news, the DWC will implement the new evidence-based drug formulary for medical providers treating injured workers this January. The division will also host informational webinars on the formulary implementation. The drug formulary establishes a list of medications to guide appropriate care for injured workers, emphasizing their health outcomes and helping them return to work while reducing administrative burdens and costs. Its guidelines include measures to prevent the overuse of opioids, powerful painkillers that must be carefully monitored when used to treat work-related injuries and illnesses. The formulary will be part of the MTUS, which contains guidelines on treatments for injured workers, and it is based on guidelines created by the American College of Occupational and, and Environmental Medicine, known as ACOM. The formulary adopts a drug list compiled by the DWC with assistance from ACOM and takes into consideration medications frequently prescribed for occupational injuries and the evidence-based drug recommendations in ACOM's guidelines. The final regulations approved by the Office of Administrative Law implement the adoption of an evidence-based drug formulary as mandated by Assembly Bill 1124 and it includes provisions for phased implementation of the formulary in conjunction with the recently updated evidence-based MTUS treatment guidelines. Also, a list of drugs classified as either exempt or non-exempt with respect to the requirement to obtain prospective utilization review before dispensing. It includes ancillary formulary rules, including rules regarding physician dispensing, generic versus brand name drugs, off-label use, special fill, perioperative fill, compounded drugs, and access to unlisted drugs. Provisions relating to the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee must also be included. 
to inform and educate the public about the adoption of the implementation of the MTUS drug formulary, the DIR will host an informative online webinar. The webinar will focus on the formulary's regulatory framework and explain the rules that apply to the drug list designations and how the formulary relates to recent updates of the MTUS guidelines. A demonstration by the Reed Group of the online access to the 8Com materials and information on how workers' compensation system participants can obtain a license will also be provided during the webinar. If you miss the webinar, and recording will be posted online for later viewing. The Division of Workers' Compensation announced the approval of a labor management carve-out agreement between the City of Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Police Protective League. The agreement covers an estimated 10,000 union members. Labor Code Sections 3201.5 and .7 allow employers and unions to form a labor management alternative workers' compensation system, also known as a carve-out. A key feature of most carve-outs is an alternative dispute resolution process. The Labor Code first provided for carve-outs in the construction industry and closely related industries. Later, legislation provided for carve-outs in the aerospace and timber industries, and then it provided for carve-outs in all other industries. There are 57 active labor management carve-out agreements in California, including 27 that cover public safety unions, 21 in the construction industry, and 9 in other industries. Employers or unions usually employ and compensate ombudsmen, mediators, and arbitrators in the dispute resolution process. Legislative statutes requires that an appeals process be maintained in a carve-out. Therefore, the arbitrator's decision may be appealed to the reconsideration unit of the WCAB and ultimately to the state's courts of appeal. And in medical news, reserving a claim for lifetime workers' compensation benefits can be tricky business. For example, how do you guess a good number for life expectancy? For most of the last several decades, life expectancy has been increasing as a result of new medical discoveries. But now, antibiotic resistance has caused a fall in life expectancy for the first time. The UK Office for National Statistics said that life expectancy in future years has been revised downward after the statistics authority said that less optimistic views about the future had to be taken into account. Opinions on improvements in medical science had declined, it said, and fears of the reemergence of existing diseases and increases in antimicrobial resistance meant people would not live as long as it was previously expected. The Office for National Statistics used predictions about how medicine and science will improve to model how life expectancy will change. Under the projection made in 2010, a baby girl born in 2016 could expect to live 83.7 years. This has now been revised down to 82.9 years. Baby boys 
are also set to live less long, with children born in 2016 expected to live 79.2 years instead of 79.9, and those born in 2060 expected to live 85.7 instead of 86.8. The expectancies have been revised down before but this is the first time the Office for National Statistics has said it believes antibiotic resistance plays a part. Experts have repeatedly warned of the dangers of antibiotic resistance, which could cause hundreds of diseases which are currently easily curable to become killers. Antimicrobial resistance also includes the issue of viruses and funguses becoming resistant to antiviral and antifungal medication. An increasing number of people with HIV have a version of the condition which is resistant to antiviral medication. The World Health Organization has said that the phenomena is one of the biggest threats to global health. Earlier this month, it told farmers and the food industry to stop giving the medicines to healthy animals. It is also asking farmers to avoid using the varieties which are seen as the last line of defense because they are among the few medicines which treat certain diseases in humans. According to a paper published earlier this month by the European Consumer Organization, antibiotic resistance is set to become a bigger killer than cancer by 2050 and routine infections could become deadly in as little as 20 years. And in other industry news, CVS Health Corporation plans to buy Aetna for $69 billion in a blockbuster deal that would further consolidate the U.S. healthcare industry by merging one of the nation's largest pharmacy chains with a major healthcare insurer. CVS operates 9,700 drugstores and 1,100 walk-in healthcare clinics. Rumors of the firm's potential marriage have been circulating for weeks, and both companies repeatedly have declined to comment on the speculation. For consumers, the merger would be the latest example of how the sale of drugs and other healthcare supplies, patient treatment, and medical insurance are being consolidated under one roof. The deal would enable CVS to expand its range of health services to Aetna's vast membership, with observers suggesting that CVS storefronts increasingly could offer more local care options by becoming community medical hubs offering primary care and pharmaceuticals. A CVS-Aetna tie-up also could impact consumers by sparking further consolidation among other major players in the healthcare industry. For the companies, the merger is seen as helping them mine new areas of sales growth and, in the case of CVS, hopes to fend off potential threats to its pharmacy business from e-commerce giant Amazon, which is eyeing a move into the pharmaceuticals business. Aetna would use the CVS deal to move past its scuttled plans to acquire rival insurer Humana Incorporated and to keep pace with United Health Groups, the nation's largest health insurer. 
United Health has been aggressively expanding into filling prescriptions as a pharmacy benefit manager, and it owns more than 400 surgery centers and urgent care clinics and runs medical practices for about 22,000 doctors nationwide. PBMs negotiate with drug companies for volume discounts and run prescription drug plans for insurers, employers, and government agencies. CVS's Caremark unit is among the nation's largest pharmacy benefits managers, but it faces stiff competition in that market from United Health and others. A CVS Aetna merger would require clearance by federal antitrust regulators, and approval is by no means certain. Indeed, Aetna dropped its $34 billion bid for Humana in February after a federal judge blocked it on antitrust grounds. But analysts say the businesses of CVS and Aetna have little overlap, and thus the merger stands a better chance of being cleared. CVS revenue last year totaled $178 billion, while Aetna's revenue was $63 billion. Patriot National Incorporated provides technology, outsourcing, and underwriting services to the workers' comp insurance industry with several offices in California. It has announced a plan of reorganization as part of a restructuring support agreement with its lenders, which have agreed to acquire the financially troubled firm. Patriot National will be acquired by certain funds and accounts managed by the investment management firms, and its U.S.-based subsidiaries will file voluntary petitions for relief under Chapter 11 of the U.S.C. Bankruptcy Code. The lenders will convert a portion of their claims under the financing agreement in consideration for 100% of the new equity to be issued in Patriot National and the subsidiaries under the plan. All existing equity interests in Patriot National and its subsidiaries will be extinguished, and Patriot National will no longer have any affiliation with its founder and former CEO Stephen Mariano, who resigned earlier this year. The company expects the reorganization, which is subject to regulatory approval, will be completed early in the second quarter of 2018. Patriot National said it will continue to operate its businesses in the ordinary course and the Chapter 11 filings is not expected to have a meaningful impact on its day-to-day operations. Patriot National also said it intends to continue to provide service to all of its carrier customers in accordance with the terms of current agreements. The move is not unexpected after a tumultuous year for the company that came to a head in mid-November with the announcement that its largest workers' compensation customer, Guaranteed Insurance Company, would be placed in receivership by Florida regulators. GIC held an estimated 10% of Patriot National stock and accounted for 60-70% to of its business. GIC provided alternative market workers' compensation insurance in 31 states with 8,600 active policies in force as of November 13, including 1,250 policies in Florida. Shortly after Florida regulators took over GIC, Patriot National filed a forbearance agreement with its Securities and Exchange Commission, 
that said it would be laying off 250 employees representing approximately one-third of its workforce. Another affiliate of Patriot National, Ashmere Insurance Company, announced last week it would be acquired by New York-based Bedrock Insurance Group Holdings. Ashmere is a workers' comp insurance carrier licensed in 15 states. ESIS Incorporated Chubb's Risk Management Division announced a new workers' compensation solution that it says is designed to help streamline the claims process. The new advocacy model known as ESIS Care is designed to keep the employee at the center of the claims process. They say this will foster more confidence for employees going through the workers' comp claims process while helping to establish a transparent relationship with the employer. As part of the ESIS Care Solution, both employers and employees have access to a dedicated network of intake, clinical, and claims representatives, and specialists known as care champions who are responsible for helping to support both parties throughout the duration of a claim. For employees, the new advocacy model helps eliminate perceived barriers, increases communication, and provides a customized level of care while providing more transparency about the process. ESIS Care enables care champions to operate as consultive partners for employers and trusted advisors for their employees. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.